Concerning Bangladesh, when we were there, it's probably been like 13 or 14 years now, but it was only $86 for a well. And so, I mean, it's inflation, but still, that's, that's a cheap well. We have pictures we should show sometime again. Um, Bangladesh is just, it's in a floodplain. The whole country is just basically floodplain from the Ganges, Brahmaputra River. And uh, so it's easy to get down in. Um, there's some clay stuff with it, but they do it by hand. And they do it like using water and gravity feed. And it's remarkable how they put a well down as far as they put it and how quickly it can go down. Um, and the water's good. You can watch it, the process. It was, it was really cool to watch. And uh, it is, it is, when we think about that, and we think about how much it takes for us to put a well down, and we think about simplified over there, doing it, and it's just, it's, it's a wonderful bang for your buck if you want to do something for some people. Um, they need it over there. They, uh, sometimes those wells go bad fairly quick just because of how the country is, but... What will happen over there is you have multiple religions and sometimes different religions will decide that they're going to cut off wells from people of other religions. So in our case, when we were over there, we were putting in wells because um, some, some Muslims had cut off their wells from Christians and Hindus and Buddhists. So we went and we put some wells in and we were very, hey, water is for everybody, regardless of what you believe. People need water. And... Uh, that's cool. He's going to make that happen again over there. Um, it's good. He contacted me earlier this week about some of the teachings we've been doing. Um, and he's going to try to translate some stuff so we can start doing some of this with uh, spiritual warfare, powers of darkness. Um, you know, he's ministering to people who still have idols set up in their house and have family principalities that the family has worshipped for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And uh, combating that is a big deal. And breaking freedom for that family and taking on those idols and the spirits attached with that. Um, in the West, we kind of look at this academically, and some of us just put it off, which is kind of what we talked about the very first week I did this. But over there, like, it's this is a day-to-day -day battle against various principalities that um, have had hundreds of years of legal service from families and, and lines, and it's definitely real. And so today, um, we're going to finish this stuff up. We've covered um, most everything that was on our list that we originally did back at the end of April, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the, the devil and his angels. That was the last thing on our list. Um, we had talked about how briefly we had talked about how in the Old Testament there's no real, they never say the devil they never say Satan um, we just were familiar with the serpent figure in Genesis so we're going to talk about that um, and then we're going to do a quick recap at the end um, one thing we didn't talk about with spiritual the spiritual realm is we didn't talk about the good guys or what they're good most of the time until they decide they're not going to be good um so we're going to briefly talk about cherubim and seraphim um, being throne guardians, the watchers that are mentioned in Daniel, and then we, we talked about how they were, again, mentioned in Enoch, and then later in the New Testament by Jude and Peter. Um, 
angels in quotation marks, meaning those that were sent on missions and messengers of God. Um, and then a little bit about archangels. But first we'll talk about cherubim and seraphim. Um, both are considered hybrid creatures. When you, read, when you read about the throne of God, you get these really crazy descriptions of the creatures that surround God and their spiritual creatures. Um, they talk about them um, uh, when, when man is kicked out of Eden and they kind of close up Eden. He puts cherubim, these guardians, and again, the idea is that they, they protect and dwell in sacred space to keep those that are unholy and those that are not worthy out of the sacred space. So you get, um, I, think, I think it's Isaiah when he goes, they have to touch the coal to the lips to make him worthy. That's the sacred space, the fire, the, this, this holiness of God that radiates from the throne. Um, both are considered hybrid creatures in the Bible. They have this hybrid appearance, um, various biblical descriptions. They don't really get mentioned as angels, or Malachim is the Hebrew for angel, Angelos is the Greek for angel. So they are kind of their own separate thing. They are spiritual beings. Um, you get a lot of hybrid creature talk in the Bible. Um, cherubim comes from the Akkadian Caribbee, or Caribou or Caribbee. Um, they would call them Caribbean. There are other cultures that saw these creatures, so at some point, People on earth were seeing these creatures, and they were always in the protection of sacred space. Um, other, re- culture, other cultures will reference them. When you get back into the time of like artifacts that are coming out from like the flood, you see figures very much described around the throne with the wings and the lion faces and the different things going on. So at some point, more people saw these things, and there was talk of these things. Um, Seraphim, a lot of people, academics will consider cherubim and seraphim about the same. Just saying that because they both kind of fulfill the same role in scriptures. Um, Seraphim is interesting. Um, Quote here from the Journal of Biblical Literature. The seraphim of Isaiah 6, 2, and 6 that attend Yahweh's throne may also have been fiery beings if the noun derives from the verb seraph to burn. Some people say seraphim just means burning ones. That's if you take it as a verb. Um, but it more likely that it derives from a noun because it's a creature, it's a, it's a thing. And the noun is actually serpent, which in turn is drawn from, uh, you see this in like Egyptian icono- iconography. You have these flying serpents that are around sacred space in there too. Um, again, hybrid animals, animal spiritual beings. But anyway, this is important because this is going to get into um, Satan a little bit. If that is the case, Egyptian imagery related to the divine throne guardians includes fire as well, which it does. Uh, But again, just more throne guardian imagery considering these, I mean, we might in English call them like mythical beasts or something, but they are spiritual beings. They are around God's throne. They're the ones crying holy and uh, the ones that that are with Yahweh. Um, Now getting to Genesis 3, we need to cover up and finish with Satan. Um, So we'll just read through Genesis 3. And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, and the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the first thing that we know of the serpent is he's in rebellion to God, and he's going to question, have Eve question the relationship of God to her. Now Eve, in this, Eve she believes that she's not surely going to die, probably because in her time with God, she is with God, and she's, there's that love, there's that relationship there, so that I think he just kind of twists that, is what we can read. And uh, she does. She does do that. And then um, she's deceived, and then Adam willingly makes a choice. And we get, we get sin and death from this here. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree, of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so we're going to go a little bit further here the Lord's declaration. Um, and the Lord God said to the serpent, and this is stuff that we're going to tie in to what we know of uh, Satan in the Old Testament. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and to the dust you, will, you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And we get the, one of our first prophecies here of Christ way back in generation, and Christ does bruise the head of Satan. Um, so just keep in mind the language of being on the ground, on his belly, he's being shut down to the ground. Um, a lot of people take this and they're like, Satan was a dragon and he lost his wings and he was cast down. And we don't really know that. We don't know for sure any of that stuff, but the form that he had. Um, the form of a flying serpent reckons back to seraphim description in Isaiah. But there's also parts in the Bible where they refer to Satan as a cherubim. So I don't know. All that, who knows. But at this point, Satan's, Satan's uh, what he is is different now. It's, he's, been, he's been cast down to the ground. Um, who was the Nakash, which is the Hebrew word for serpent? Um, at this point in Genesis, it doesn't really give him a name other than the serpent. The Hebrew word is that. That's with the vowels taken out because most of your Hebrew words have the vowels in it. And then you assign vowels, and when you assign the vowels, it gives the word meaning. Um, when it's a noun and you add the vowels in, you get serpent. Wasn't this kind of fun, the language use that God uses when he writes? Interestingly if, you, interestingly, if you put it into a verb, it turns into diviner or oracle, which also has that evil connotation to it. And uh, it can also be turned with certain letters into bronze or copper, and which is, again, kind of like a triple entendre, because in Daniel they talk about some of the spiritual beings as being like polished bronze, 
when, they, when he sees different beans coming down. So it's kind of fun how, like, in one word, you can pull different aspects of this out. Um, some people will say, especially those that don't want to deal with the spiritual realm, that it's just a snake. It's just a snake. It's just a creature. That doesn't make any sense to me that they're just fine with talking snakes and talking flying snakes, and then there's nothing more to it. Now it's just a snake, and all of our snakes used to be talking flying snakes at one point. It's obviously talking about a spiritual being, and uh, then what we have to do now is make connections with what it with direct scripture to figure out exactly who the spiritual being is. Um, are there more Old Testament references to this being? The answer is yes. There's at least two famous passages that people use. Um, Ezekiel 12 is, is talking about the Prince of Tyre. And Ezekiel is about to go, or I'm sorry, um, Ezekiel 28 talks about the Prince of Tyre. And in doing so, it brings comparison to another figure. Uh, first, look at one of the most troublesome translations in the Old Testament. It's not a giant deal or anything, but this is one of the ones that a lot of people are like, we just don't know what to do with this. Um, Ezekiel 28.12 addresses the Prince of Tyre this way. Um, You are a perfect model of an example. Um, Some translations in your Bible will have you are a signet of perfection. So they can kind of go back and forth based on that word. Um, One of them gives it more of a, a thing, whereas one of it would give it more of a... This is a bean or a person. So if you believe they are comparing him to a bean or a person, you've got to kind of go with the latter. Um, this line is one of the most troublesome in the book for translation. Some scholars go as far to list it among the most problematic in the entire Old Testament. The Hebrew word behind perfect model or signet ring, and then it shows it, is the crux of the problem. The word is not a vowel, a noun, but a participle that literally means the sealer. The translation of signet ring takes that term to denote some object, but the term is addressed as a person, as in you. The fact that this sealer is described as being full of wisdom and perfect in beauty also makes it clear that an object is not in view, but some intelligent person or entity. There is also a rare phenomenon in ancient Semitic languages where the final letter M is silent, the eclectic mem. And if the M is made silent, in effect removed from the confusing word, the word actually becomes serpent in Phoenician. So again, there's like this double entendre within the language. Um, it becomes serpent in Phoenician and Semitic languages. The noun in its lemma form is ch And uh, we'll read the passage. You were full of... Now this is where he's comparing whatever being this is. I think that it's a being. I don't think that it's a thing. Not talking about a city or anything. Now he's comparing this to something, and as we read, I think we get it. You are the signet of perfection, or it could be the perfect model of, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. 
from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you into ashes of the earth, on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become... You have come to a dreadful end, and none and shall be no more. Um, again, at the end, talking about the fate that awaits the fallen spiritual beings. You shall have no more. Um, so, here's my thing. I would say that this must be talking about the serpent figure, because he's referring to within Eden. The only reference we have of any kind of creature like that in Eden um, was the serpent figure. And some of it makes sense. The anointed guardian cherub language. Um, I think that there's a case that can be made. So referenced in Eden, beautiful, shining, anointed cherub, proximity to the throne. Talks about the holy mountain of fire, throne of Yahweh, that whole image. Um, Wisdom was bent to create his own splendor. He was assuming Yahweh as equal, and then he was cast to the ground. Um, The word that they actually use for ground in here can also be used for underworld in many places. Um, it kind of goes back and forth. Um, Isaiah 14 would then be my other passage that would tie the serpent into this to give us an idea of what's coming. Um, in Isaiah 14:4, God tells the prophet to take a taunt up against the king of Babylon. The Hebrew word mashal is better used to describe as like a comparative parable. The question to keep in mind as we proceed is to whom is the king of Babylon being compared? Um, so again, he's going to compare another person that is being prophesied against to this figure that sounds a lot like the previous figure. The beginning of the parable sounds as unfavorable to the king of Babylon as Ezekiel's description of the prince of Tyre. Is that to that ruler? The king of Babylon is called an impressor who ruthlessly persecuted the nations. The world would finally be at rest when the oppressor is laid low. In anticipation of the joy of finally being rid of the king of Babylon, the prophet writes... Um, Sheol, which we talked a little about Sheol being the underworld. The underworld is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades. The word shades there are those Raphaim. Those are those unclean spirits that we talked about a couple weeks ago. So here we have this figure being sent to the underworld, going to receive his uh, little minions. All who are leaders of the earth, talking about the dead shades, it raises from their thrones all who are kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp has brought brought you down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. Some of the theology that people put behind saying that Satan was a previous worship leader in heaven just comes from that line there, the sound of your harps. Um, That he was around the throne of God with his harps. I think that's a stretch. I don't know. I think there's probably music involved. There's obviously some worship of God involved. Um, but that's the one line where everybody, Satan did all of this, and then he was arrogant and got cast down. That's where people try to grab that from. Um, how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. Again, remember we've talked so many times about stars being looked at as if they are referencing them as spiritual beings. Um, how are you cut down to the ground, You who laid the nations low, who said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. 
And I will set my, set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Again, the reference, throwing that he's being cut down to the ground. Rephaim appeared again in here, references to the ancient kings, the mighty men, the spirits that are left. They rise to greet him. Similar language, again, referring to wanting to be like Yahweh. I think this is, this is our crux right here on why he did what he did with man. We were created in Genesis to rule the earth with Yahweh. That was our purpose. Um, he created Eden. We saw that was, was good. He said, go out and subdue the land, multiply. Um, I'm going to guess that it irked this being that, that we were given the domain of earth. And so to get rid of that, Satan does what he does, because I believe this is referring to Satan, the serpent. He does what he does out of jealousy, out of spite. Obviously, he thought a lot about himself. He's probably wondering why, look at the way I'm created, look at what I do. Why isn't this place for me? Why do these mudball beings get to do what they do and partner with God? Why were they chosen? That's speculation, but I think that that fits the verses. I think it's a jealousy thing. I think he knows the destiny. He knew what we were created as, and he wanted to stop that. And he did effectively stop that for thousands of years, but not not permanently. So what we have in the Old Testament is we have a spiritual being. Uh, they were, it was rebelled and flung to the ground, literally and metaphysically, was thrown down to Sheol, um, wanting to assume the position like Yahweh, Proximity to the throne, close relationally to Yahweh. He knows what Yahweh's doing because he was right next to Yahweh's throne. Um, cherubim or seraphim, he gets described as a serpent, which would be more seraphim-like, but you know he's referenced as a cherubim, doesn't really matter. Um, and then again, the Rephaim, those spirits of the Nephilim, um, the demons rise to greet him, also the inhabitants of the underworld. This makes sense to me a little bit more now because the Rephaim... Those spirits that are left over, they have no rank. They're called bastard spirits. They're called unclean spirits. They don't, they don't have anything of any kind of higher anything in this hierarchy. Um, I most likely follow the original rebel as father. That would make sense. Again, speculation, um, but based on context of multiple verses. Um, so I think that's where Satan gets, Satan gets the, the beginning of his crew. Um, throw him back. We talk about Satan and the devil a lot. People always get into the horns and the, the hooves and the pitchfork. And we always wonder, where is that coming from? Uh, this was a slide from a couple weeks ago. As was this, we talked about worship of Baal. If you'll notice on Baal, Baal is often used as the antithesis of God in the Old Testament. If you look at Baal, he's, it's not exactly a pitchfork, but he's got his little thing with the things on top. He's got his horns, his horned helmet. Um, he's got that little... The hair on the chin, um, that ancient. So it's, I don't think it's just a Western thing. I think this is just kind of how people have perceived it. We also talked about Pan a couple weeks ago. It was part of the Greek mythology and also the one that was there at Caesarea Philippi. Again, look at Pan's description. Um, I don't think that necessarily Satan looks like this. I'm just saying I think this is why he is depicted the way that he is depicted. So there's actually historical thousands of years of idealizing this figure, 
like they would these big baddies, if that makes sense. Um, New Testament. So we're done with the Old Testament, looking at, looking at the serpent being. We don't get a name. Um, then they decide, remember we talked about in the Old Testament, there's Hasatan, which just means the adversary. It's a title, not necessarily a person. Um, but in the New Testament, we actually get Satanos, which is a, that is a proper name. So at this point, they're going to give him this name, and this is a figure. Um, it's Hasatan transliterated. It means accuser. Um, he's referenced multiple times in the New Testament as having a kingdom, um, which allows thoughts on rulership. He's an adversary, and there's multiple places where it's used within the same context as devil. They go back and forth between devil and Satan as title. Uh, then we do have the word devil, devil, which is the Greek diablos, uh, which means slander. He is the enemy of Jesus and his work, um, used in conjunction with the father of lies and also used in the reference of the devil and his angels. Um, they also use it interchangeably with Beelzebul, which we talked about uh, going back with Baal, master of the underworld. So perhaps uh, means ruler in a heavenly realm, master of the realm, fits with the added prince of demons title that, that he gets in the New Testament also. Um, and then again, they, they refer to him multiple times as the evil one, Hoporneros, uh, and it gets paired at times with the generic Satan title. So those are kind of the titles that they give him in the New Testament. Um, and then they'll actually, you know, refer to him as the ancient serpent in the garden. So it kind of seals the identity of Satan devil as the original rebel, that first spiritual rebellion. Um, Matthew twelve twenty six, um, and this is Jesus responding. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Um, the ruler of the world gets backed up by Paul's prince of the power of air and God of this world, God of this age titles. Um, air, sky, when he says air, he's not technically, I don't think, talking about the chemical composition of everything that we're breathing He's referring to sky, um, which is one of the heaven, the realms of heaven, when the people go through the levels of heaven. There's like this that we have. There's like the atmosphere. There's the spiritual world. There, that's a teaching in itself. But that's kind of how the, um, the Jews looked at that at that time. So again, ruling, he's not ruling in. So when you see ruler ruling in the heavens, Satan's not ruling in what we would think of proper heaven. He's just ruling in this lesser place. So, that has gone through our entire list. So now we're going to just go through and do a recap chronologically. Uh, just kind of leave us with something. You have the creation of earth. It's, a, it's attended by divine counsel, the spiritual family. Yahweh creates man, physical family. Go subdue the earth, spread what we have in Eden across the earth, which is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven on earth is Eden. That's referred to as the garden of heaven. Uh, Genesis 1, um, the first spiritual rebellion in the Garden of Eden. The serpent goes against his creator Yahweh. Eve is deceived. Adam willingly joins along. Genesis 3, um, we get God deciding the spirit is cast down to the dust, the earth. Death enters in. Sin enters in. Uh, the mission to subdue the 
subdue outside the garden and spread even in heaven is delayed. Genesis 4 and 5, you have the proliferation of men. The serpent is still loose. Genesis 6, the decision of some, some sons of God, uh, watchers are of the council, to leave positions and come to earth to create their own children with the daughters of men. Taught man to sin even better. Uh, the Nephilim giants are born. Human and spiritual dis- depravity. Um, those original whopper, walter, ugh, watchers are subdued and thrown into the pit, which is again referenced multiple times in the New Testament. Then you have the flood. You have the spirits of the dead Nephilim left to roam. Uh, the origin of unclean bastard or mixed spirits. Now a problem for humanity. Flood is older, over. Uh, God gives the same command to Noah's family, which is go out, spread, multiply, and subdue creation. Uh, man multiplies, but does not all spread. They stick together in comfort and rebellion. Um, plans to build Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. God is not impressed. Once again, human rebellion. So this is the, now the third time God is dealing with a wide-scale people not doing what they need to do, not being loyal to what he has asked. God and divine counsel come down. We see that in Genesis 11. It talks about the we. Uh, the tower gets rocked. Humanity is fractured. Language is given. Um, it looks like 70 council members are set over the current nations. And again, that's referenced back in Psalm 82, which takes you back to Deuteronomy 32.8. Um, God creates Israel as, as his own. It is his portion for the plan to bring back the nations. He even tells that to Abraham through you. You know, the fullness of the Gentiles, the things we refer to. Abraham is given promise for believing loyalty, um, Genesis 12 through 15. Eventually, the nation's spiritual rulers fall into corruption at some point in Genesis. We don't know when. The Bible doesn't talk specifically. We just know that by Exodus, we already have all this idolatry and other people worshiping things. Um, The story of the Hebrew patriarchs in Genesis, working of a plan to restore uh, the forces of darkness are also at work. We know that the giant clans that are left, for whatever reason, are spreading again. Um, we know that different nations start putting up their gods. Eventually, the Hebrews are in Egypt. Yahweh will bring them out. And again, he even prophesied that to Abraham. So um, Yahweh delivers e- the Hebrews from Egypt. He has victory over the gods of Egypt. That's referred a couple times specifically that he's laid those gods low. Um, They're in the wilderness, law given to Hebrews to have boundaries for those that would have believing loyalty. Um, Idolatry seeps into camp. Um, Yahweh says, now is the time we need to go subdue land. Hebrews get scared at the sight of the Nephilim spawn, the Anakim, the Rephaim, the other tribes that they're mentioned. Numbers 13 and 14, the rebellious Hebrews get to camp out in the wilderness for another 40 years. Eventually they make it back in, and they nearly kill all of the giant clans. We read about that in Joshua. Um, they're back in their land now. We get the judges. We have the time of Samuel. We get King Saul. Finally, David finishes the job in this whole story of getting rid of those giant clans. Um, he is a man after God's heart. He does plenty of stupid stuff, but he is never idolatrous. I think that's a very important lesson to take from David. David makes a lot of mistakes. He even listens to Satan when he does the census. Like he's made some, like there's some definitely David Bonehead moments. However, what we can say about David and where he is different than all of his kids and what comes after him is that guy is never idolatrous. He is Yahweh's man from the start through it all. And I think that is very important. His loyalty never wavers. And that's one that God said, he is a man after my own heart.
unwavering loyalty. Um, so he takes care of the physical remnants of all this crazy stuff that happened in Genesis. Now they are left with the spiritual components, the Jews. And they teeter-totter back and forth between idolatry and Yahweh, idolatry and Yahweh, and finally the exile happens. Um, after the exile, we get the second temple period. However, now we as second temple people at the time, the Hebrews realize that the Hebrews and humans have problems. They have sin, they have death, they have spiritual opposition, they have the one that they're calling the devil or the Satan, they have the unclean spirits and the principalities and powers, the nations are lost and most of the nations are against them. Should make sense if your nation is run by a rebellious spirit who is anti-Yahweh, he's after the Jews. Um, Second Temple Jews are looking for a Messiah figure that will take care of all of this. Jesus provides the solution to all of this. Um, We won't talk much on this because we've talked a lot about this in the past. Death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We preached one on soteriology, which is salvation doctrine earlier. We are now going to live forever with Jesus. Sin has broken over us. Um, we're going to see the forces of darkness cast into the lake of fire at the end. All evil will be consumed in that fire. Sin will no longer exist. Um, he provides the solution to the unclean spirits. This one's obvious and quick. Um, all of the Gospels, but more details in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus just rules over the unclean spirits. No issues. They recognize him. They call him out by name. They know who he is. There's no, the death and resurrection doesn't need to happen in order for Jesus to have power over them. Um, They beg not to be destroyed early. They know that they're all heading to that same place. They talk to him, oh, did you come? You're too early. We're not supposed to be, you're not supposed to do this yet. Uh, Jesus gives this power to those professing belief and loyalty to him when he sends out the 70. Um, He sees Satan fall like lightning when the 70 do his works of healing and casting out. Um, Again, that number 70, it's, I think, again, just a reference to the ultimate goal of taking back those 70 nations back from the Tower of Babel. Uh, Matthew 16 and 17 scenario, which we talked more about last week, about the church being born on the defeat of it all. Jesus then gets into the binding and loosing. Um, Jesus also provides a solution directly to the devil. Uh, Beelzebul, master of the Lord of the underworld, no longer can hold death over those who profess belief and loyalty in Jesus Christ. He can no longer prosecute for sin. Um, was unsuccessful in thwarting Jesus in temptation. He was probing for answers and trying to provoke idolatry. And uh, ultimately, he brought his own destruction with the combined plan of the darkness and the humans to kill Jesus. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.7, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, I like the use of this age, understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They had it wrong. They didn't get the answers. Temptation of Jesus is pretty cool because when, when Satan quotes scripture, um, he quotes part of I think it's Psalm 91. In Psalm 91, if you get into where it actually, what it's talking about, and I know my dad has been praying Psalm 91 through the whole corona thing about the protection and the, uh, the pestilence, and actually it's, it's, it names four demons within that. So when you're praying that, you're actually like pestilence, the word for that was actually the name of a, a demon worshipped for that. And there's, there's four of them in there. It's, it's interesting to go look at. But anyway, Satan uses that. He uses this uh, anti-demon 
psalm to quote to Jesus, hey, you, you have this, you know, you have this power, do this. Um, just submit to me. But again, it's that idolatry. He's trying to get idolatry in there. It's about idolatry. It's about you not doing and not believing what God has said. That's, that's the trick. They, they have no, they're done. So they just want you worshiping and doing other things. That's all they want. They're on the way out. They know about the lake of fire. Jesus provides the solution to principalities, um, Ephesians 1.19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits it all in, fits all in all. And to bring to light for everyone that what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Paul is just laying this out, this whole plan from the beginning, the mystery that was kept now has been fulfilled. And then he goes into talking about Jesus, the, the resurrection, the ascension. Now he's ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of God. Everything is below him. All those nation rulers, it's all below him. And he is head of the church. All those nation rulers, they are below us. We are to combat that. And again, I, that's, I don't think that's tough to get out of that. It goes right back into the Matthew 16, 17, uh, Mount Hermon, when he's sitting there. Again, in Ephesians 4, 8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he, give, and he gave gifts to men. Talking about the gifts that he's giving to men, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, and he's talking about spiritual gifts. Um, again, indirect, the idea that he's led the captives out, you now have the ability to fight. You have these gifts. And it's interesting, here's the throwback. It's interesting that he's quoting Psalm 68 when he does that, when Paul says that. Um, so let's just read a little bit of Psalm 68. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. Does anybody remember what the mountain of Bashan is? Mount Hermon, the place where he did the transfiguration and he sits on the gates of hell. So it's in the region of Bashan. It's the highest mountain of Bashan. It's Mount Hermon. So he's saying, O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands, and the Lord is among them. Sinai is now the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord may dwell there. So that's what he's quoting from. And he's quoting about the mountain of God versus Mount Hermon. So it's just fun that he's even bringing the spiritual warfare from the Old Testament up into his quotes. Um, Jesus provides a solution for the nations. Um, so we're talking a little bit about how some of the cultures had some of the same beliefs. So when Paul is addressing this stuff to all these Greeks, why is he addressing this stuff to the Greeks? They're not Jews. Why would they know this background? Um, here's a little, little paragraph from Plato. And this is what the Greeks, part of the Greeks' beliefs. 
In the days of old, the gods had the whole earth distributed among them by allotment. There was no quarreling, for you rightly suppose that the gods did not know what was proper for each of them to have, or knowing this, that they would seek to procure for themselves by contention that which more property belonged to others. So just stopping right there, the idea that the gods of the whole earth and the little g-gods of the whole earth distributed among them from allotment. So when Paul is talking about these principalities and powers, when he's talking about some of his, the, the Jewish belief for this, some of this is already echoed in the Greeks. They believe that there's an allotment for these, these principalities and powers. And um, just goes on to show how the Greeks believe that allotment went. Um, again, Yahweh's version is much different than those of the other nations. Um, Christ, the hope of the Jews and Gentiles. Again, he's talking to the Romans. He wants to make it clear to the Romans that um, this has always been God's plan to bring you guys back. And so he quotes like four different things from the Old Testament, like talking about the nations are coming back. Um, So here he is. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Always been part of the plan. Some people like to separate. Some people kind of, I've heard some people that are very Messianic, Jew-oriented. It's kind of like the Gentiles are an afterthought. The Gentiles were never an afterthought. He tried multiple times to devise his rescue plan that we talked about for eight weeks. And uh, it was about bringing us back. Um, And the symbolism for bringing us back, this is going to get us close here. Uh, We're going to talk about Pentecost just here at the end. And on the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each and every one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each, of, each was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both the Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they are just filled with new wine. Two key items in Acts 2 connect the events of Acts 2 to Babel. First, the flaming tongues are described as divided, and second, the crowd composed of Jews from all the nations are said to have been confused. In English, that may not seem particularly convincing, but Luke is writing this in Greek, and the Greek words he used here, translated as divided in confusion, both come from passages Genesis 11.7, which is where God divides and confuses, the Tower of Babel, and Deuteronomy 32, where it's the Song of Moses, and he's talking about how all the nations were divided and allotted out. 
both of which describe that division of languages and nations at Babel and the resulting confusion. The Holy Spirit has come to bring back the nations. The Holy Spirit is the tool in bringing back the nations. He is the one that is going to take us and do the things. Um, it all, that's the whole flow. These spiritual dark forces, that's the whole flow. Jesus died, resurrected, he ascended, everything is under his feet. The Holy Spirit is here to help us. All of that's in there. All of it is even hinted from the beginning all the way through. Um, I feel like that's just, that's what we were, we're getting at. We're getting at that this stuff has answers. There's a full coherent spiritual worldview in the complete scripture. There are other ancient cultures that share a lot of these events, but the Hebrew Bible has a unique viewpoint on all of it. We can have a view into why certain spirit beings exist. Hopefully we can grasp the predicament of all of it outside of Jesus. Jesus provided the eternal solution to our predicament. We have an understanding of our spiritual standing and rights in Jesus. His solution helps to rejoin Yahweh's family and have victory over the powers of darkness. We are part of an eternal storyline of a father God who longs to be with and work with his family in making everywhere like heaven. The Great Commission is our call, and we are above adequately empowered to do it. And that's where, I, that's where it ends. We have seen the scope of history. We have seen God's plan. We have seen that all these different things, people knew some of this stuff was going on from other cultures. And the Hebrews kept it through. Jesus came. He delivered this. We get it all. It's not to say it doesn't have to be. It's going to be tough. There'll be times that it's tough, but we have the tools. We can say, look at scripture. This was your predicament, evil. This is where you're at now. It's in there. It's all in there. Um, some of it seems pretty crazy at times, but we are adequately prepared to go and do the Great Commission. And uh, we can look at Jesus, and we can see what Jesus is saying. Kingdom of heaven is coming. Repent. Casting out demons. Healing people. That's encompassed in the Great Commission. So, we know that. We see that in the Bible. What are we going to do? Need to do it. So, Hopefully, through all of this, there's a framework for that now, that we can see plans throughout all of history. There are things that, that we're always going to be taken care of and see it in the context that it was in and realize that there's the, the relationship between all of that. Um, again, Jesus provides that for us. There are still people under dominions. But that's where we come in. They don't have to be under dominions. Those nations don't have to follow that. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the architect of all things. That these secret hidden plans that that are talked about in the Bible, Lord, that the, the mind of God is unfathomable. That you had all of this stuff planned. You figured out a way around all of it. Lord, we just thank you that you are supreme. We thank you that you are the God above all other gods, spirits, principalities, all of that stuff. And Jesus, we thank you for coming down. We thank you for providing those moments of your existence for us. When you took on flesh, when you did that for us, 
and we thank you as the head of our body that we have what it takes to not have to deal with all of this stuff to come out in victory, that that victory was won, that we, that we live out of that victory. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are a great helper. We thank you that you will deliver answers to us, that you guide us in what we do. And I just ask that we would learn to listen to you more. When we go on and we face things, show us when we're facing things of this earth and show us when we're facing things of the spiritual and remind us of our power to combat both. Especially as we would start looking at outreach, as we look at doing the Great Commission, doing the things that, you, that Jesus commands us to do. So Lord, just teach us and remind us We want to continue to watch strongholds fall. We want to see heaven come to earth. That we can get it as good as we can get it until the fullness comes. So Holy Spirit, keep us keep us clean. Help us with our thoughts. Don't let us fall prey to any of these things historical evil and just help us to see it through. Lord, we thank you for all of this. We thank you for your plan again. You're perfect in all of your ways, Lord. And in your name, Jesus, we pray all this. Thank you. Amen.